0: Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got a great episode for all of you guys today. Um, To start off with, though, we've got quite a few updates in the news. I think one of the biggest things that happened recently was the Delphi murder suspect was wrapped up and is now in custody. This article actually came out this last week, and it's Mom of Murdered Delphi Teen Demands Answers After Suspect Went Unnoticed for Almost Six Years, and Allie Griffith wrote this article. The mom of one of two young teens murdered in Delphi, Indiana, in 2017 is demanding answers after learning the girl's alleged killer lived in plain sight in the tiny community for five and a half years after the heinous crime. If this turns out that he is the killer, how did he manage to go unnoticed for almost six years, Carrie Timmons asked during an interview with Inside Edition. Police arrested Richard Allen, 50, on October 26th in connection with the killings of Timmons' 14-year-old daughter Libby German and her 13-year-old best friend Abby Williams on February 13th, 2017, He has been charged with two counts of murder. The bodies of the two girls were found a day after they had disappeared while hiking. Grainy footage recovered from Libby's phone showed a man walking near the place where the girls were last seen alive and saying the phrase, Down the hill. Alan, a married father of two, lived and worked in the small town of Delphi, where the girls lived and died and where their unsolved murders rocked the tight-knit community of just 3,000 people for years. Alan was a familiar face to many as he worked at the local CVS, the only pharmacy in town. Timmons said she had long suspected her daughter's killer had some knowledge of the area, given their ability to get in and out of the Delphi Historic Trails where the girls' bodies were found. She never suspected the murderer to be a well-known community member. It just seemed logical that they had some kind of ties at the very least, she said of the suspect. I didn't expect him to literally be living right under everyone's noses. Libby's grandmother, Becky Patty, told reporters that Allen had even processed photos of the slain teens at the CVS and didn't charge the family for the cost, the Indie Star reported. Allen was a regular at a local watering hole where he interacted with many residents as well. He and his wife went to J.C.'s Bar and Grill three to four times a week before it shuttered last year. The bar owner, Bob Maddock, told the local publication. Maddock said Allen spoke with other regulars and joined in the conversation when it would occasionally drift to the unsolved murders of the girls and how heartbroken their families must be. A police sketch of the teen suspected killer was hung on the bulletin board of the bar. Alan was photographed at the bar, grinning with the sketch directly behind him. Pretty bold, like it didn't matter, Timmons said of the photo on Inside Edition. It just seems crazy that he was right there living life every day. Many Delphi residents described Allen as a nice and helpful person in the community, Not someone they ever suspected in interviews with the Indy Star. I've been in the business, our business for a while, and I thought, boy, how did I ever miss that one? Carroll County Sheriff Toby Lesenby, who's been in law enforcement for 36 years and whose department assisted in the multi-agency investigation, told the outlet. Timmons said Allen's arrest has left her hopeful for justice, but has also left her with more questions. I've always said the girls deserve justice, and I hope that's where we're headed. That justice is coming, she told Inside Edition. There are a lot of questions left unanswered, more questions now than there ever were before, Timmons said. Information connecting Alan to the murders and any evidence used to obtain a warrant for his arrest have been temporarily sealed. Libby would be about to turn 20 years old today if she was still alive. Regardless of the arrest, it doesn't bring her back, her devastated mother has said. I'm still going to be living life wondering what she'd be doing at this point or at that point. Allen was transferred out of the local county jail to state prison for his own safety. He has pleaded not guilty to the murders. And we will continue to keep you all posted on that one. The next one is an update on the John Binet Ramsey case, which is the one that we covered. So if you want to hear more about the John Binet Ramsey case, we covered that on episode 168, which came out March 20th. So, JonBenet Ramsey case, Boulder Police Consulting Cold Case Review Team Nearly 26 Years After Six-Year-Old's Death. And Audrey Konkin wrote this article. The Boulder Police Department is consulting the Colorado Cold Case Review Team Nearly 26 Years After Six-Year-Old JonBenet Ramsey Was Murdered in the Basement of Her Family's Home. John Binet's mother reported the six year old missing to police in the morning of December 26, 1996, after finding a lengthy ransom note demanding $118,000 in exchange for John Binet. The girl's father, John Ramsey, found her body later that same day in their basement. It appears the governor's office has brought pressure on the Boulder police to finally accept help from outside to solve the murder of our daughter, John Binet. John Ramsey said in a statement to Fox News correspondent Laura Engel, We've been fighting and praying for this from the beginning when it became obvious the Boulder Police Department was not equipped or experienced to deal with the unthinkable murder of an innocent child. The department, in addition to partnering with Private DNA Labs, said it will consult with the Colorado Cold Case Review Team comprised of cold case experts from across the state at some point during the year. BDP described the team as a tool to help further cold case investigations. JonBenet's half-brother, John Andrew Ramsey, described the move as interesting in a Wednesday tweet. This is positive, he wrote. Forward progress. More work has to be done to catch a killer, but it can be done. An autopsy after JonBenet's death revealed the girl died of strangulation and a blow to the head. The Boulder City Medical Examiner reported an eight-and-a-half-inch fracture on her skull. Authorities have not convicted any suspects in the case. BDP says it has investigated leads from more than 21,000 tips, letters, and emails, and traveled to 19 states to speak with more than 1,000 people about the case. This crime has left a hole in the hearts of many, and we will never stop investigating until we find JonBenet's killer, Boulder Police Chief Maris Harold said in a Wednesday statement. That includes following up on every lead and working with our policing partners and DNA experts around the country to solve this tragic case. This investigation has been and will continue to be a priority for the boulder police department the move comes as john ramsey has made efforts in recent years to bring renewed attention to the case and find his daughter's killer he helped release a petition in the spring of 2021 which has garnered more than 28,000 signatures calling on colorado governor jared polis to allow an independent agency to take over the investigation from bpd the father of five has expressed deep disappointment with bpd's handling of the case over the last 26 years and believes independent research teams who have offered their assistance in the case have the ability to bring his daughter's killer to light to do so BPD must hand over the evidence in their custody so items can be retested for DNA to potentially build a profile of the suspect. If they were able to build a more complete DNA profile of the suspect, that information can be compared to millions of DNA profiles uploaded to public databases showing people's unique genetic codes. The murder of JonBenet Ramsey is a terrible tragedy and sparked years of unanswered questions and theories. Our office has successfully prosecuted other cold case homicides and many murder cases, District Attorney Michael Dottery said. In every one of these cases, it was the evidence that proved the defendant guilty whether it was dna or other evidence more is needed to solve this murder i appreciate the collaboration with the cbi the fbi and the boulder police department interesting stuff we will continue to keep you guys posted on that one as well another update on the sherry papini case we covered the sherry papini case in episode 174 on may 1st but michelle Chandler wrote this article, and it's Sherry Papini, the California mom who faked her 2016 kidnapping, begins her prison sentence. Sherry Papini, who faked her own kidnapping in 2016, has begun serving her 18-month prison sentence. Papini, 40, is being held at FCI Victorville, according to the Federal Bureau of Prisons. The facility has 1,836 male and female offenders, according to the agency's website. Papini was to turn herself in on November 8 to federal authorities in Sacramento or at the federal prison. The medium security facility is located in Victorville, a city in San Bernardino County. Papini, 40, was also ordered to pay $309,902 in restitution for losses incurred by the California Victims' Compensation Board, the Social Security Administration, and Shasta County Sheriff's Office, as well as the Federal Bureau of Investigation. She must also pay a $200 special assessment. After going missing on early November 2016, Papini turned up three weeks later on Thanksgiving morning, saying she'd been kidnapped, tortured, and had injuries. In- including a brand on her right shoulder. It was not until March 2022 that the FBI arrested Papini, and she admitted to faking her own kidnapping and inflicting the injuries. She later admitted to being voluntarily in Costa Mesa, California, with her ex-boyfriend the entire time. Well, I suppose she'll go ahead and serve her sentence out then. Next, we're going to cover off on the case update for... Anna Sorokin. So we covered off on the case of Anna Sorokin in episode 164. That was February of this year. But fake German heiress Anna Sorokin is hosting exclusive invite-only dinner parties at her Manhattan apartment while on house arrest. And Jordan Hart wrote this article. Convicted scammer Anna Sorokin isn't wasting time re-entering the New York social scene after her recent October release from ICE custody. Sorokin, now 31, is currently under house arrest in her East Village apartment, but the ankle monitor hasn't stopped her from hosting invite-only dinner parties, Fortune reports. Plans for the former socialite's dinner stories were obtained by Eater and confirmed by a spokesperson for Sorokin, although an exact start date for the exclusive events wasn't given. According to the Eater Report, an email from her publicist detailed the status of the Russian-born con artist invitees. Each dinner will welcome 10 to 12 VIP attendees, including well-known founders, influencers, media, and celebrity talent friends, the email read, according to the Eater. The dinners will take place in Sorokin's fifth-floor walk-up, one-bedroom apartment she rents for $4,250 per month, according to the New York Post. The German citizen has been spotted leaving her Manhattan home for parole meetings. Dinner parties aren't the only project Sorkin is taking on now that she's a free woman. On Thursday, she listed several pieces of original artwork for sale priced between $17,500 and $25,000 each. As of Saturday morning, at least three of the prison sketches have sold. The former fake heiress will remain under house arrest, which includes a social media ban, until her battle with ICE to remain in the U.S. is settled. Sorokin was convicted of multiple charges in 2019 after conducting a years-long crime spree that involved swindling tens of thousands of dollars from friends and hotels and millions from Fortress Investment Group, Bloomberg reported. She gained further infamy after a 2018 New York Magazine article was adapted into a Netflix series titled Inventing Anna and starring Julia Garner. Wow. Well, we will continue to keep you guys posted on that one as well. That is if she is deported. Uh, Elizabeth Holmes also has an update. Evidently, she is trying to avoid prison for the Theranos fraud, which she was convicted of. Jonathan Stemple and Jody Godoy wrote this article, but Elizabeth Holmes urged a U.S. judge not to send her to prison. Evidently, they are seeking at least 20 years, and a significant amount, almost over $900 million in restitution, is currently being sought. But, Elizabeth Holmes urged a U.S. judge not to send her to prison as the founder of Theranos Inc. prepares to be sentenced for defrauding investors in the blood testing startup. In a recent court filing, lawyers for Holmes asked that she received 18 months of home confinement followed by community service at her November 18th sentencing before U.S. District Judge Edward Davila in San Jose, California. The lawyer said prison time was unnecessary to deter future wrongdoing, calling Holmes 38 a singular human with much to give and not the robotic, emotionless caricature seen by the public and media. No defendant should be made a martyr to public passion, the lawyers wrote. We ask that the court consider, as it must, the real person, the real company, and the complex circumstances surrounding the offense. Prosecutors are expected to file their sentencing recommendations soon. A jury convicted Holmes in January on four counts of wire fraud and conspiracy. Each count carries a maximum 20-year prison sentence, and any of those sentences that she receives will likely be served concurrently. Prosecutors said Holmes lied to investigators from 2010 to 2015 by promising Theranos technology could run many tests on a single drop of blood. On Monday, Davila rejected Holmes' request for a new trial, including over a claim that a key prosecution witness visited her home and made statements that undermined his testimony. Holmes founded Theranos in 2003 at the age of 19 before dropping out of Stanford University. Theranos was once valued at $9 billion, and Forbes magazine in 2015 estimated Holmes' net worth at $4.5 billion. More than 130 friends, family, investors, and former Theranos employees submitted letters to Davila urging for leniency. This included former Berkshire Hathaway executive David Sokol, who called Holmes a person of high integrity, who believed in her technology, and U.S. Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey, who said homes can, despite mistakes, make the world a better place. Theranos former President Ramesh Balwani was convicted in July of defrauding investors and patients about the company. His sentencing is scheduled for December 7th. So we will continue to keep everyone posted on that. And the last update is one on Scott Peterson, which is Pretty interesting, but court date set, Scott Peterson will learn next month whether he will get a new trial. Aaron Tracy wrote this article, and a judge will decide if Scott Peterson gets a new trial and will announce the decision in court during a hearing next month. Judge Anne Christine Masulo has scheduled the hearing for December 2nd in San Mateo Superior Court, where Peterson, in 2004, was convicted of killing his wife, Lacey, and their unborn son, Connor. The case went back to the court in 2020 after the California Supreme Court ordered that a juror misconduct claim by Peterson required further review. Peterson's attorneys alleged that juror Rochelle Nice was biased against him and lied on a jury questionnaire in order to serve on a jury. Nice answered on the questionnaire that she had never been the victim of a crime or a party in a lawsuit, but a few years prior she obtained a restraining order, a type of lawsuit against her boyfriend's ex-girlfriend who had threatened her while she was pregnant. Another time, that boyfriend was arrested for domestic violence after a fight that she had testified was probably about him cheating on her. Peterson had been having an affair at the time of the murders. During an evidentiary hearing in March, niece testified that her boyfriend never hit her and that she was the aggressor. When I filled out that questionnaire, truly and honestly, nothing of this crossed my mind. She said she didn't know the restraining order that she got against her boyfriend's ex-girlfriend was a type of lawsuit and didn't consider a lawsuit she later filed against the ex-girlfriend for lost wages because she ultimately dropped it. Prosecutors say... Niece made mistakes on the questionnaire, but didn't intentionally lie. The December 2nd hearing will be live streamed on the court website, regardless of which side wins, either can appeal the decision. Wow, very interesting stuff indeed. And then we're going to talk about the main case for the day, which is a vintage one that I found quite interesting. It's the case of Blanche Monnier. So Blanche Monnier was born March 1st, 1849 in France. She was a socialite from a well-respected but conservative family in Poitiers. Her family had noble origins, and she was renowned for her beauty and the fact that she had many potential suitors for marriage. In 1874, she was about 25, and she met and decided to marry an older lawyer who was not approved by her family. In particular, her mother, Louise, did not like this man and argued that she would not be able to marry a, quote, penniless lawyer. Angered by the fact that her daughter was so defiant, her mother locked her in a dark attic in their home in a very small room where the daughter was kept isolated for 25 years. Her mother, Louise, and her brother, Marcel, continued on with their daily lives. None of Blanche's friends knew where she was. In the meantime, Louise and Marcel pretended to mourn Blanche's disappearance, but did not reach out to the local authorities for any assistance. None of her friends or the lawyer she wished to marry knew where she was, And that lawyer died unexpectedly in 1885, and yet Blanche was still held in the attic room. On May 23, 1901, an anonymous letter was received by the Paris Attorney General. The author of this letter is still unknown, but it revealed, "...I have the honor to inform you of an exceptionally serious occurrence." I speak of a spinster who is locked up in Madame Monnier's house, half-starved and living on a putrid litter for the past 25 years, in a word, in her own filth. Police then entered the house and found Monnier in appalling conditions. She was covered in old food and feces. There were bugs around the bed, and she weighed barely 55 pounds. Her hair had grown so long that it was her only clothing because she was found in the nude. One of the police that rescued her that day described the bed like this. The unfortunate woman was lying completely naked on a rotten straw mattress. All around her was formed a crust made from excrement, fragments of meat, vegetables, fish, and rotten bread. We also saw oyster shells and bugs running across her bed. The air was so unbreathable, the odor given off by the room was so rank that it was impossible for us to stay any longer than to proceed with our investigation. Blanche's mother was arrested but became ill a little while after and died fifteen days later, after seeing an angry mob gather in front of her house. Blanche's brother, Marcel, appeared in court and was initially convicted but later acquitted on appeal. They deemed that he was mentally incapacitated, and the judges criticized his choices in keeping his sister in the attic. They found though that the duty to rescue did not exist in the Parisian penal code at that time. This made it so that they were unable to convict him. After Blanche was released from the room, she continued to have mental health problems because of course she was trapped in an attic for 25 years. She was diagnosed by health professionals with various disorders, including anorexia nervosa, schizophrenia, exhibitionism, and coprophilia. This soon led to her admission to a psychiatric hospital where she died in 1913 in apparent obscurity. Many books have been published about this since and articles written about this poor woman, but it's an absolutely fascinating case that no one even bothered to look for this poor woman and she was held in the attic for 25 long years unable to escape and unable to get any communication out to anyone to rescue her and the man that she loved the penniless attorney was never able to rescue her and ended up dying without knowing what happened to his love an absolutely riveting story by all means well, we're going to go ahead and wrap the episode up for the day. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can shoot us an email. We're at the BFDpodcast at gmail.com. We also post occasional pictures for the cases that we cover on the show, and that is on Instagram at BFDpodcast. We feature all of the articles in our show notes, so you can see which ones we were talking about or if you want to do further research on the case. And please join us again next week, when we talk more about weird, faffy, and wild cases, goodnight, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye!